Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Spirit Seeker Hour. Spirit Seeker Hour is your chance to delve into the world of your inner spirit. The Spirit Seeker Hour is brought to you by Spirit Seeker Magazine. Go to www.spiritseeker.com to find out more. And now, here's Cindy Meyer. Hello and welcome. And as the introduction said, this is Cindy Meyer. I've been the publisher of Spirit Seeker Magazine for 19 years. And it's just hard to believe that it's 19 years. And uh, we have been producing this radio show in this format for a little over four and a half years. And um, we have been, I took a pause. There's been a lot going on with Spirit Seeker and in my life. So this is the uh, first time we've been back on the air since the end of November. And I apologize, there was a switch in the phone number from Blog Talk. So we know that the people who are meant to be here now will be here. And um, we know that you listen to the archive, so if you're not here, we will be um, letting all of you listen to this fabulous show uh, tomorrow. The only, um, or tomorrow or whenever, this is the, the beautiful part of having a blog talk, uh, a blog format for a radio show. It's a virtual podcast. Anyone can listen to it. We get the stats. We know that people listen morning, noon, and night from all over the world, and we're grateful for all of our listeners. We're grateful for our readers, and uh, we just uh, are just grateful that we have this platform to connect people in so many different ways via the internet. So, Tonight, we are going to be learning about the upcoming 28th UFO Conference. And you heard it right, the 28th UFO Conference. This conference uh, was um, has had people from all over the United States as well as an international attendance. Uh, and two years ago, Dolores Cannon, who had uh, brought us the Transformation Conference for many, many years, um, she she said yes to being the promoter um, when the original founder of the UFO Conference uh, went to um, made his transition and went to the other side. And Dolores Cannon, who is also an angel on the other side now, was um, she's worked with you. She had worked with UFOs from the very inception as an investigator uh, with other scientists from around the world. She was well-respected and still remains well-respected. Um, she's she's one of my heroes, heroines, whatever you want to say, because um, she's just, Dolores just made a difference. And she was a, a keynote speaker at Spirit Seekers um, Conference in 2008, and she just... You know, her name will go on forever. She she took the UFO conference and she did um, broadcasting from satellites and beamed it everywhere. So this UFO conference brings together some of the most amazing speakers and experts who have worked with um, the UFO globally. You know, because the United States has kind of kept quiet about it, and you'll be hearing from two wonderful experts, Tom Reed and Richard Dolan, tonight, um, and and uh, I'm going to bring them on to the air now. So, uh, Tom, are you there? If not, he'll be joining us in a moment. And uh, Richard, are you there? 
I am indeed. Is it Cindy? Okay. Hi, Cindy. Oh, yes. Thank you so much for being my guest, and I apologize for all. I thought, gosh, I wonder if the extraterrestrials are playing with us with oh, all yeah. of the last-minute changes. We, we did have, I did have a different phone number to call in. Uh, I heard you mentioning that, and, and it's the truth. Like, I called the wrong number, and it was, uh, sorry, you've reached the this is, number's not in service, and I thought, well, that shouldn't be. <laughs> no, and Tom actually um, uh, let me know because otherwise I would not have known. I mean, it was accidentally yeah. transposed, but it was correct on everything else except for the bl- email that we sent out this morning. So we know that who is meant to be here will be here. And, and Nate, just please send me an uh, email or text once Tom does arrive, if you would. Um, sure. Okay, all right. So let's... You can start anywhere, Richard. I know that you're an internationally renowned UFO author. You're an investigator. You're a researcher and reporter. You uh, host your own radio show, uh, The Richard Dolan Show, on KGRA Radio. You're a frequent guest on Coast to Coast AM, and, of course, everybody knows that show. And you've also been featured in a new television documentary series, Hangar One. So... You have an interesting background, so you start wherever, and I will uh, ask questions as we go along. (laughs) I'll I'll try to be efficient here. I feel like the luckiest guy that I know, uh, honestly. I get to write about the the subject that obsesses me more than anything else, and that is the UFO phenomenon. And let us just add associated um, cover-ups and illegal government activities that go along with that. There's a lot of that. So I get to do that uh, full-time these days, and I've been doing this full-time for quite some many years now. Uh, I am a historian by training. I've written two volumes of history called UFOs and the National Security State. Uh, Those cover a a kind of straightforward historical narrative of the phenomenon and the cover-up associated with it for the past, uh, I guess, 70 years. There will be a third volume that will take that story to the present day. I, wrote, I co-authored a speculative book about the future. Um, what if you know UFO secrecy were ever to end? How would that change our world? That book is called AD After Disclosure. And I wrote more recently, about a year ago, published a book um, that I think summarizes the entire UFO phenomenon in a fresh way, I think in a forward-looking way, and that, and that is called UFOs for the 21st Century Mind. Uh, along the way, I've written many articles on the subject, and I've done a lot of interviews, television uh, projects, and, and radio, and so on. Uh, You mentioned Hangar 1, which is uh, kind of a fun thing that I've been doing going into our second season. And uh, that's, uh, I I think, an attempt to portray the the UFO phenomenon and cover-up in a somewhat deeper way than you typically get on cable TV. And so I think they're to be lauded for that. And uh, that second season is starting on April 10th, so next Friday. Wow, so we were like right right here. It's just happening. Yes, indeed, and I'll be there replete with long hair and beard for this series, uh, for this season. The first season, I still had the short hair and no beard. And um, anyone who likes to follow my life on Facebook, and they, they've seen all the physical changes, so they're all like, Dolan's looking like a hippie now. And so, yes, this is the long hair beard version of Richard Dolan that will be on season two of Hanger One. <laughs> well, and you know, let's start at the very beginning. How did you? Um, how did this all begin for you? Was it, were you a young boy I, looking up at the I, sky, or I mean, how did this begin for you? Not particularly. Um, as a as a young person, I grew up um, 
I think with an average level of interest in, in things like this, I watch Star Trek like every other person. I used to watch In Search of with Leonard Nimoy like every other kid. Uh, that you know made me no different from anybody else, I think. Um, I got into the study of history in a very serious way as a young a young man. Um, which, uh, my, my goal was to be a university professor in history. That was always my goal, and I was very good at what I did. Uh, got a master's degree at a very young age in German history, then did a second master's program in uh, U.S. diplomacy, did uh, not one but two truncated doctoral dissertations, each over 100 pages on uh, various things. The last uh, thing I was looking at formally when I left academia was uh, U.S. diplomacy circa 1950, U.S. national security strategy, I should say. So basically, Harry Truman and the Russians and the birth of the CIA and everything having to do with that, nothing to do with flying saucers. Right? That's not what you do in the academic world. And then in the early 1990s, uh, a little over 20 years ago, I um, was in a bookstore and I saw a UFO conspiracy book. It was the classic by Timothy Good called Above Top Secret. And the subtitle of that book was The Worldwide UFO Cover-Up. And that really uh, captured my interest. I thought, really, the worldwide UFO cover-up? And everyone wonders about a UFO cover-up. I don't think there's a person out there who has never wondered, gee, I wonder if that's for real. Right, you know? So I remember picking his book up and recognizing many of the names in that book in my own research, but having a completely different, you know, a non-UFO take on it. And I had this moment of what I've since called cultural schizophrenia, you know, where you've got official version of truth that you're supposed to believe, and then this other version of truth, which looks like maybe there's some validity there. And I simply wanted to know one thing. It wasn't even if UFOs were real. I was not at that point. I simply wanted to know, has this ever been a valid aspect of my nation's history? Is it the case, as some people have claimed, that there were top-level generals and admirals and CIA directors who were interested in UFOs after all? And if they were, why had I never read about it in any academic history book ever? Because really, how could that not be interesting? Even if they were interested in this as a mistake, why would that not be interesting in the context of 1950 and the Cold War and the Berlin Airlift and the Korean War and all that stuff? So I simply wanted to know, was this a thing in American history and by extension of world history? And it turns out, yes, of course it was a thing. So all I was going to do was take a few months out of my life and investigate and find out what is the case that these, the believers make. Do they have a case? And so like any good student, I went through the bibliography. I went through um, as methodical a, a search as I could of, of what the argument was, what the documents were that existed that made the case. And I discovered, to my own satisfaction, that it was a heck of a good case. And that uh, through freedom of information, we got lucky in the late 70s and got several thousand pages of documents pertaining to UFOs out of the government that did not suggest, did not hint, but proved absolutely proved that the United States military and intelligence community has had engagements with UFOs for many, many years, head-scratching accounts that they could not explain of objects doing things that were supposed to be impossible, but there you go, they were doing it anyway, objects that were tracked multiple ways, including radar, including visual, not looking like anything that, that we're supposed to have out there, invading sensitive airspace. And so, yes, clearly this was something important and that got my attention because, look, anyone who goes through that process is going to realize if this actually is what it appears to be, then 
all of the history that I thought I knew is suddenly woefully incomplete or maybe even dreadfully wrong. And so it's, it's kind of a, a paradigm-shattering moment. And uh, I went through that. That was the whole first year of my research. I mean, I just could not stop. I was utterly obsessed by this subject, asking all of these if, if-then scenarios. Like, if this is true, then what would that mean about the Eisenhower administration? Like, what would he have known? What would Kennedy have known? Um, Fascinating. Fascinating. Just that alone just right, right there. Yeah. It just opened everything up. And so, really, you go down one little path, and that if you answer one question, was our military interested in UFOs, you get an answer. The answer is yes, but that opens up a dozen more questions, and then you keep going down all of these different paths, and that's been now the last 20 years of my life. You know, um, Richard, did, did you ever meet Dolores Cannon? Oh, yes. I, I love oh. Dolores. Knew her. Um, I, I didn't really hang out with Dolores ever, but I met her at a number of conferences, and um, we were always very sweet with each other. She was a very lovely lady. You know, because I've interviewed her a number of times and, you know, read her books, and um, she, um, you know, she was, as as I shared earlier uh, in the show, and in case you're just joining us, welcome, um, Dolores looked like someone's grandmother. From when I from the time I met her, she looked ordinary, and then she would start talking, and you would just your jaw would drop, and and she made it all seem normal. And I remember interviewing her one time, and uh, she brought up the incident. I forget which state it was in in the U.S., but I think it was I think it may have actually been Arkansas, which is where she hailed from. She hails from or hailed from whatever, and the cows all died. And she said, you know, no one could understand why the cows died. And she said the reason the cows died is so that we wouldn't eat the cows because they were tainted. There was something wrong with them. So it was almost like a higher intelligence wiped out this huge amount of cattle so that we would not be harmed. And she said, she was talking about this higher intelligence, that that's what the UFOs are. There's a higher intelligence that's communicating with us. There's like a two, you know, they're they're trying to help us, not harm us. So you can run well, with I, it. Let me, I'd like to make a comment on that, if, if you don't mind. Um, with Dolores, I mean, I I love the, the lady, but Dolores has an, had an approach to the UFO phenomenon that I have never had. And And I'm not saying they're antithetical, but I'm saying they're very different. And so, like, I've never wanted to try to make a comment one way or the other on that her particular method. And essentially, it's a method that I don't know how to prove or, or falsify, that is, prove or disprove. Um, my, my method of investigating this phenomenon has been and really must always be founded on um, what, what I know how to do, which is look at historical evidence, documentation, uh, what what a journalist would would probably consider to be a valid way to go about it. Now the fact is this: there are many people in the in interested in the UFO phenomenon who have obtained information through, let us say, non-conventional means, mm-hmm. such as how Dolores would do and how other people continue to do. Um, so I would say first of all that I I do not dismiss such methods of of doing that because I happen to believe in in things like let's say remote viewing as being accurate or at least uncannily accurate much of the time. Uh, 
uh, and other, other, let's say, psychic means of, of acquiring information. My problem with that, at least philosophically, is I know for sure that not all of it's accurate. I know for sure that there are people who actually do fake things. I, I'm not saying she did. But oh, there are no. psychic but things can be wrong also. Psychics can, can be wrong. And when, when I run into individuals who give me the, you know, what they claim is knowledge of extraterrestrials' intentions, for example, I personally take that always with a grain of salt. I have to. And particularly when someone says that they know all of the extraterrestrials are bene- beneficent. I'm, I'm very skeptical of that, as I would be of someone who says they're all evil or they're all allowed to eat us or something like that. I would be skeptical of that as well. I don't know one way or the other, and I would, I personally, as a researcher, I would be remiss in my obligation for what I do if I were to go out and say this is what their agenda is, because I don't really feel that I'm in a position that I can, I can tell that to people. Well, and Richard, I may, that was paraphrased, that was probably, it was several years ago when I interviewed Dolores, but but I understand what you're saying. There's that so like <laughs> 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 Okay, well, we're going to go with the empirical data and the scientific approach that you um, you have lent to this I didn't area. Of- I don't want to cut off there, because um, honestly, I- we'll talk about intentions and motives all the time, and and I can roll with it, but I, I just felt like I had to uh, put my own position out there for the, for the listeners. And I'm grateful. <laughs> I am grateful. So let's hear, let the listeners, um, you know, many of them are coming because they've been studying this, but you've been at this for 20 years in a, in a very data-oriented confirmation way. So will you... You, will you share with us as to why um, you feel there has been such a, a lid on this? And um, it's my understanding, and I don't know if this is true, but this is what I've heard, so I would love for you to clarify it, that there was almost a uh, a global agreement when Area 54 happened. Um, with the U.S., they suppressed it, and maybe um, you can talk about that. And then from what I understand, Europe many countries uh, in the in Europe are starting to talk about it. They're like, we, these things are flying across our airspace. We are going to talk right. about it. Okay, so let, let's go into this. this I, I think this is quite interesting. Um, I think you meant to say Area 51, but I think everyone... Oh, I, I, did, I did, I did, I did. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, by the way, I, I'm, very, I'm very philosophical about this matter, and I'm, I'm always speculating all the time. Um, I think it's important to speculate as well as to be factually based. For me, in my own work, I simply like to distinguish between the two. Like I like to know when I'm speculating, and I just let people know I'm, this is what I think may be the case. This is this is what I know is true, and this is what I think things look like. I think that's a perfectly legitimate to, thing to do. The, the only uh, critique I have of some other people in this field is when they portray what they think is the case as actual knowledge, and when I know for a fact that they don't have knowledge, but they're basically pretending they have knowledge. I think that we have to speculate because we're dealing with really the greatest mystery of our time. That is the mystery of what appear to be, what strongly appear to be, higher intelligences that are operating here on planet Earth, and we really cannot compete with them. And so they're they're operating maybe even in a space-time reality that we're not ordinarily equipped to deal with, you know, it'd be like a fish trying to perceive life on land. We we just wouldn't be able to do it. And maybe that's what they are. Maybe they come into our water, as it were, every so often, 
interact with us and leave, and, and we struggle to understand. So I think we have to speculate. So what I believe is the scenario is, is more or less as follows. I think that they, whoever, whatever they are, have been here probably a very long time, probably as long as we've been here. And I think that for most of that period, it's been very easy for them to stay in the background, maybe create a, a nice secure base under the ground or under the ocean floor. wouldn't be hard. Maybe they could, um, you know, have a, a, some of our species every so often working for them or interacting with them in some way or another. Who knows? I, I don't really know, but I think that there's reason to think that they've been here a long time. However, then comes the 20th century. In other words, we get to an era where our technology starts exponentially increasing, and we get we get flight, we get radio, we get uh, radar, we get nuclear weapons, we get computers, we get artificial intelligence, we get nanotechnology, we get bioengineering. And we're not done, obviously. We're developing quantum computing if we haven't already achieved that. In other words, I mean, literally, (laughs) figuratively, within the blink of a cosmic eye, like the snap of a finger, we're leaping into their world. We're now developing the ability to detect them. At least our military and intelligence community is developing the ability to detect them. Um, so what this means is where humanity is at a kind of interim phase where the leading edge of our technology kind of knows that, they're, that they are here. And that leading edge, which is run in a very non-democratic way, which is basically in a kind of proto-totalitarian fascist manner globally, dominated by the United States, uh, has decided that they don't want to share this information with the rest of the population on planet Earth, not willingly. Now, the problem with that is that the rest of us are also kind of sort of understanding that oh, there's something going on there. And so what we've been living in for the past 70 or some odd years is basically an official series of lies where this reality is here. Our national security elite understand it is, but they've been lying and lying and lying about it. Now, um, I do believe that there have been a number of cases where the predominantly the U.S. military, but I think also the Russian military, have acquired exotic technology that did not originate from our civilization. Everyone knows about Roswell. I think there are other examples as well. I think that led to, in the United States, the creation of what you call Area 51, the Groom Lake facility, and a number of other highly secure deep black facilities that basically are off limits to anybody. And I think that some of these places, yes, they're in part to study highly advanced ET-based technology. I think we've got some of that going on. Now, is there an agreement? There have been a number of uh, statements over the last many years that, yes, give the impression that there's international understanding about this phenomenon. Uh, There was an interview done in the 1970s with a Spanish general, Carlos uh, Castro Cavero, in uh, 1976, I think he gave this interview, where he he said explicitly, there is an international understanding, I'm paraphrasing here, um, there's an international agreement, protocols are in place, and so forth, on an international basis relating to the ET phenomenon. Certainly what we can see, you know, forget the UFO phenomenon. What we can see is that globally the world is going through a revolution right now, and the nation-state era is really ending. 
We're moving into a kind of transnational globalist era in which uh, supranational legal systems are coming into place right now as we speak. And it's even more connected within the global intelligence community, which is dominated by the United States. Um, the only nations that are outside the United States' dominant control are Russia and China at this point. And in fact, what's happening in the world geopolitically is basically a not-so-secret war that the United States is fighting against Russia, which they're trying to destroy Russian power, and then China will be next. Uh, once those two nations are out of the way, what the U.S. national security people would like to see is a complete totalitarian system dominated by them. And who knows? Maybe they'll get it. Maybe they won't. So behind the scenes, I think within in the intelligence community, we have a, a situation of the UFO data is dominated by the U.S., but shared with the intelligence agencies of most of the other major players, Britain, Canada, uh, France, you know, all of these nations to varying extents, Australia, um, Germany, I'm sure is in, in the game at this point, maybe Japan. I think I think we can probably figure that out. I don't know for sure, but that would be my guess, that enough data is shared with the major military and industrial complexes of the world. Um and, you know, I mean, the political leaders of each of these nations are, for the most part, they're pretty much figureheads. Uh, basically, I don't want to say figureheads. They're more like corporate, um, they're, I guess, corporate tools would probably be the best way to describe all of these people. And so they know their place and they keep out of the UFO phenomenon and they, they make their trade agreements and they do everything else and they, they leave the UFOs to the intelligence crowd. That's how I think it works. Well, and you know, it, it's to me, the first time I actually was asked something, uh, I, it, it brings back memories. Okay, Spirit Seeker has put, um, they, we hosted 28 conferences since 1996. And in 1996, uh, it was our first conference, and there was this remote radio station. It was like 45 minutes to an hour outside of St. Louis. And, you know, I thought, okay, it's an opportunity to let people know anytime you're on the airwaves, you reach, you know, you reach people. You reach, you know, people that you would never reach. And so here I am in this, in, and it was really out in, you know, the the, the boonies. I mean, it was it was dark when I got there, and it, you've got the general feel. So um, we're talking about the conference, and then he, uh, the, the producer says, okay, and now we're going to a commercial. And he spins around and looks at me, and he says, do you believe in UFOs? I said, um, I said, as a matter of fact, um, I do. And he says, I was abducted. <laughs> he went yeah. on and, you know, I mean, and I just yeah. looked at him and I was a little bit of shock, you can imagine. I wasn't right. expecting it. And then commercial's over and back on we go. And I've had similar experiences. I, you know, I, I teach in uh, all over the U.S. and I've taught in Alaska a number of times. And Alaska is another place that I run into, you know, I just ran into it over and over. And, of course, in Sedona, Arizona, you run into it. You run into it. Oh, yeah, you know, in yeah the, for sure. You know, I mean, you know what I'm talking about. And then you go yep. to Boynton yep. Canyon and you look up and they say that that's where, you know, some of the greatest UFO activity is. I've interviewed um, some of the people from the Star Knowledge Conferences and, you know, you know, one of the, the main leaders, you know, he lives in Wisconsin and he his first uh, experience was as a child. And then the next thing you know, he's like regularly seeing activity, you know. And it's like it's too many people – that's the thing. It, it's yeah. so widespread, and and when um, and I'm glad you mentioned this 
um, because, um, you know, I remember like in earlier years before I really studied this phenomenon, I mean, I was aware that people claimed to have UFO abduction experiences. And I, I have to admit, I think I probably had a knee-jerk uh, dismissive reaction. I'm trying to remember it back, but I, I, I suspect that I did. Because I think that's just what our society tells us we're supposed to have. You know, oh my goodness, abductions, yeah, ha, ha, ha. And the and these memes are, are out there in the mainstream constantly, basically making jokes about it. Um, since I've been researching this, I've, I've had countless people, I mean, I literally have lost count of the number of people who've come to me with abduction stories. And I certainly never laugh anymore. Um, they, they typically have a great deal in common. None of these people want publicity. Um, all of them basically have had a very difficult time relating their experiences. Almost every one of them is an emotional, almost wrenching, um, you know, gut-wrenching experience for them to talk about at times. And it's certainly not all sweetness and light. Um, some of the experiences are very, turn out to be somewhat positive, yes. Others, um, I've spoken with people who I, I've seen them just broken. I mean, broken by what appear to be abduction experiences in which they've been messed with. And by the way, those people uh, hate, I mean, can't stand the new agey elements of, um, of the you know, contacting movement. They hate it. Um, I've had some, some in-depth conversations with some of these individuals because to, in their opinion, their attitude is, you know, these people have no idea. They think it's all wonderful, and these beings are not out for that. Now, that's one aspect of it. And then you do have another aspect of people who believe that they've had contact experiences that have been very positive. And so all of these things are out there. But the point is that this is, whether it's one or or both of these things, important stuff is happening. That's the key. This is not trivial. And yet right. people are in our society, we're not really feeling like we're able to talk about this openly because of ridicule. And the ridicule is in place for a reason. It's not simply... Um, you know, people out there making fun. It's it's a directive that has been in place, connection with the media, with the national security crowd, and that has been their that's been their um their instructions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's since the 1950s and 40s. Right. You're not supposed to talk about it. And, you know, it's it's so interesting. You know, don't ask, don't tell. We have so much in our society, like you know, where we're not encouraged to actually speak openly. And, you know, I just, I I think this UFO conference is a platform and the fact that it's beamed by satellite and there's, there's also a movie now being, right. So, so uh, I do want to mention for those of you that are just joining us, uh, we are uh, tonight discussing. We, we will have two uh, two guests. We're, we're Richard Dolan is uh, who we have been hearing from, an expert in the area of UFO intelligence, and um, he is one of the featured speakers at the 28th Ozark Mountain UFO Conference. It is in Eureka Springs, Arkansas. It is April 10th through 12th this year, and. Um, it's being hosted at the Best Western Inn of the Ozarks. You must, must, must uh, make your reservations quickly. The whole town sells out. You can, you know, it, this is a phenomenon. People come from all over the world for this conference. If I can add, um, well, I'm and Tom is on the line, guys. Tom is on the line. Okay, thank you, Nate. Okay. Oh, hey, good. Well, I just okay. let me just add uh, because Tom really needs to. He has had, he has important things to say here. But the the Ozark uh, UFO conference. Uh, I've I've 
attended now a number of times. It's, it's, it was started over two decades ago by the late Lou Farish, and uh, a lot of people remember and love Lou. Um, this, is, this is one of the really excellent conferences in the United States on UFOs, and it's in a beautiful part of this country uh, in the Ozarks, northwest Arkansas. Eureka Springs is a beautiful, beautiful place, and the conference is always done so very well. This is really one of the um, when any time I go, it's one of the high points of my year. So I'm I'm very pleased to be going there. Excellent people in attendance every year, and um, and and you always a great lineup. Well, and I have been there because I um, made my way in 2008 to uh, a past life regression with Dolores, and it was at her office in Eureka Springs. And I had been there one other time, and um, it's just beautiful, exactly as you just described. But truly, it sells out. I mean, it's just there's there's no more space for people. That's this, that that is how well attended this conference is. And thank you for mentioning the founder. And uh, I did not know that you had had that much contact with um, the conference. The, you know, 28 oh, years. Yes. Yeah, I've spoken there, uh, I think, I don't know, six or seven times maybe now. Okay. Five All right, six, well, like please stay there because we're going to bring you back on. And now we are going to bring Tom Reed on. And Tom Reed is going to share his childhood um, ET UFO uh, encounters from the 1980s. He um, his, uh, has shared his experience and several of, Tom, uh, of Tom's uh, childhood memories and sketches from 1969 um, have been shared for, you know, many years, and he's going to share that with us tonight. He has um, witnessed firsthand some of the different um, information that is uh, displayed at the Roswell UFO Museum in New Mexico and the Great Barrington Historical Society of Massachusetts, which um, they have shared Tom's experiences, but I'll let him tell you about that. Tom, thank you so much for being part of this interview this evening and um, and for coming and sharing your experience and, and whatever else you would like to share with our listeners this evening. So welcome. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you being patient with me. I had a hard time getting in today, so... Um hope I didn't uh, hold you up too much. Um, yeah, Ozark is going to be uh, my first visit, and um, I think the timing is going to be perfect. Uh, we've had a lot of uh, new developments uh, surrounding our case, and, and Richard certainly um, has seen the letters, and, and I, so the timing is perfect. Um, I have yet to uh, really make this known at an event yet, and so, um, you know, this will be the first PowerPoint where I formally... Uh, address all the new developments and then to include the recent induction of our, our family's history with the uh, Great Barrington Historical Society and, and really want to get into why that was inducted and how that came about because I, I, it is kind of a an honor in a lot of ways and, and it's history in the making and it's really a tribute to my father and his work but at the same time a lot of people have asked well how did that happen and what were the particulars that, um, that drove that decision and so I really want to focus on that um, you know, at Ozark next week. Well, you are welcome to share anything and act as if we know nothing. Okay. Okay. Well, um, well, I guess I can give you a little uh, synopsis um, for your listeners. Our, our case, um, and then to be quite frank with you, our case has gotten um, uh, turned around a little bit. You know how it is in, in the, in the, in the uh, online and the papers and everything. So I also want to reel it back in and to, and to get to the the particulars and the facts of this time. What really happened with our case? My mother was a very wealthy landowner owner in Sheffield, Massachusetts. And we owned a restaurant in town called the Village on the Green. And 
we had 80 acres on top of our mountain, and that area, Sheffield Bay Barrington, is one of the highest points of that pond. It's about 3,000 feet above sea level, so it's pretty high. It's uh, second to Beckett, which isn't far away, so it's 1,700 miles away. So it's a very high elevation. And around us, if you really look at it from a scientific standpoint, I mean, you've got uh, Pratt and Whitney, which is 40 miles away, electric boat, got naval base, the GE. There are a lot of government manufacturing uh, companies there as well. And we lived there in the 1960s during the time of Vietnam, where O negative blood was also the only blood type tracked by the U.S. government because we were the universal donor. So I'm telling you this because my father would always point this out. This was where he went with it as to why we got involved in something. He always thought it was a little more local than we really realized that there was a presence already there. Now, in 1969 was actually the third time that we had witnessed or seen anything in the area. That was the attack that went out on the radio, WSBS. Uh, it was my own station at the time. There was no local paper. It was a very small town. There were one of the few restaurants in town. And so it became the hub for a lot of the locals to talk about this and to uh, you know, have a sandwich and chat about it. And, and of course, there were always that, you know, the bunch that uh, made things difficult. But for the most part, after the witnesses came forward in 1969, it kind of saved their family's reputation. Now, how did that come about? Well, we went out on WSBS radio. Uh, the callers came from several at Jovia Newsletter. It was a country club not far uh, from town. It was an Egermont, which is maybe four miles from our home. So the callers that came in from Great Barrington. Yeah? Okay. Tom, I'm having a little bit. You're fading in and out just a tiny bit. Yeah, that's why I wanted to Skype. <laughs> oh, I'm but, sorry. Uh, I thought you did Skype. Okay, I'm sorry. No, I couldn't. Um, okay, I, I you're, couldn't back you're back now. Okay. You're back. So, okay. All right. So you had witnesses that, that came forward from Great Barrington. You had witnesses that came forward from Sheffield. A lot of people saw this craft. And the way it was worded was that it was performing acrobatic movements, basically unknown to conventional aircraft. We saw it uh, right over our property. We saw it. This was the third time that we had seen it. We were actually, at this point, um, when this thing was being seen, we hadn't gotten reports yet. We didn't even know about it yet. We were driving back from um, a Horseshoe. I was in a Horseshoe at Butternut Basin. And we were in a blue station wagon. And for those who saw Alien Mysteries, they did a pretty good job on part of this. And um, and my grandmother turned around from the passenger seat to say, you know, Tom, don't give your, your brother that candy because he was too young. She thought he, he thought he could choke. And at the time, we were looking out the back of the of the car, and we saw these lights. It was right before the Sheffield Bridge. And uh, it's still there today. And so we all remember um, a lot of different pieces of this thing. You know, it was kind of uh, odd. You know, we always referenced what felt felt like um, almost a magnetic field or some type of a vibe. It was almost like if you've ever been in the middle of a hurricane, there's that barometric change in pressure. There's something that your body picks up on. There was something very different in the air. And the car did actually stop to the right side of the road. Now, whether my mother stopped it, I don't know what happened, but she doesn't remember pulling it off the side of the road. We just remember we were sitting on the side of the road. And the next thing, I I could honestly say the next thing I remember was being in a large room which resembled almost an airplane hangar. And there was some carts, almost looked like carts that you put a projector on. Silver carts were in there. Uh, There was a, a light uh, like a doorway or an entrance that was probably 30, maybe 30 feet away from me. And there was a, a figure there. I was grabbed by my left arm very firmly, and I was taken out this door, and I was immediately to the right. These were not windy 
hallways, these are lefts and rights with very tall walls, very narrow tall walls. I got to the end of this hallway and I was taken uh, to the left this time and I was brought into a room that caved inward, a con- contoured inward, almost like um, like if you had a huge can, you know, to bowed inward to the left and to the right. There were pockets in this room that I could see and off to the right almost looked like an exit to me. And I was sitting on this very low uh, type of a, a stool type of thing or a bench of some kind. And there was this apparatus that was in the ceiling. The, it looked very industrial to me. Um, I was nine years old, going on 10 years old. I could hear, uh, well, I couldn't hear anything in this room. I ran out the the, the corner room there, but I, there was what looked to me something very off human, but human features. I'm not going to run to the jump on the bandwagon and say they were grays because I don't know what they were, but they looked very, very human to me, frail human, maybe almost oriental in some way, or small chin. Um, to me, it looked human, but very odd. And then at, at the same time, and this has been the most difficult part for me to talk about, was what looked like an insect type of thing. It was very stick-like. It had almost um, a um, uncanny valley feel to it. It did not. It was freaky to me. It bothered me. I ran off this table. I went out the right uh, doorway there into what was a huge intersecting hallway that was shaped very much like a Y. It, the two parts of the top of the Y would have been to my right, and it almost looked like it filtered out to the left. And the, and in this hallway that I had walked into or ran into was very round in the center, which is why the room that I was in had contoured inward. And I was standing here in this hallway, and I was taken right back in. This apparatus came over my body, and I thought it was to hold me in place, but it didn't. It wasn't that tight over my body. There was a probably a foot or two off my body. I could see my feet, I could see my body underneath it. There were um, almost like holes or circles in the side of it. And um, there were some hits to the head. Um, I, I don't know how long I was there, maybe um, maybe 15 minutes. And um, I was brought back into this room that I had come in from the very beginning. And um, next thing I know, I'm back in the car. Uh, my grandmother, who was in the passenger seat, was now in the middle of the road. Uh, There's actually a side side road. My mother was in the passenger seat. My brother was in the back seat. His head was on my knee. He was out. I was the second one to come to. My grandmother had actually driven from that bridge all the way back to town to Silk's restaurant where she got out for help because it was the only spot in town that had people still awake at that hour. And so she went back to Silk's. And when she went into the the uh, store, I got out of the back. I was calling her name. I ran up to, to get her. She was the only one that was uh, conscious or... Um, responding at all, and I was grabbing her hand, and she was talking to the clerk, and um, and um, she kind of broke down a little bit. She started to shake and get upset, and and uh, and that's what happened that night. We ended up driving home, and, and my mother, that was actually the, the third time that we had really seen or been involved in anything, and this one actually just kind of, uh, it just made, it, it, it caused us to sell the farm and we moved. We sold uh, 35 acres to Dr. Richard Stevens, who was from Great Barrington, and we sold the 40 acres with the house, and we moved. And my father ended up running for office, and he did uh, 
you know, he was elected to, well, he was a, he was a, a first selectman actually for two terms. And so we kept it quiet after that. Well, because you were, did anyone encourage you to keep it quiet or was it just, we don't want to call attention? Well, my, my, uh, you know, my father uh, was an attorney and he, we left town. We actually went to Great Barrington for a short period of time, and then uh, he, when he finished law school, he wanted a fresh start. We all did, and he. Had, I don't think he felt that with his aspirations for uh, politics that um, he was going to have much of a, a shot being in town where you know the chatter was, if you will. Right, right. And so we went to Great. We went to uh, left Great Barrington and went to uh, Canaan. Um, he ran, and he was backed by Senator Chris Dodd, and um, I had coffee over at Governor Wiker's, and I had to stay in the kitchen. He got the wine and dine in the living room, but I stayed in the kitchen. And um, so he had a lot of support from a lot of the Democratic Party. And um, and one of the reasons he went to Connecticut, too, was when he went to law school, he actually went to law school with Edmund Assey's son, who was an attorney on the Shoes Law Firm in Connecticut. So he kind of had a job before he, you know, when he got out of law school, he basically just had to move to have this position. So that's kind of how that happened. But in the meantime, he met a lot of people. So by the 80s, he uh, actually had run into a Robert Bletchman, who was uh, a very nice guy who I knew for years, who um, would be instrumental in putting together the, um, the symposium at the United Nations on October second, nineteen ninety-two, with the, you know, with the support of Muhammad Rabin from the Parapsychology Society, and you know, support from Leonard Mountain Howell, and you know, Stanton Friedman was there, and a lot of people were there, and so Robert being a Democrat, ran ran into my father during, you know, one of those little mixers and that kind of thing. And um, and as it turns out, uh, Robert Bletchman's law firm was on Broad Street, which was only about half a mile from my condo. So I used to stop by, uh, you know, uh, Richard's office, uh, you know, Robert's office, and um, and he had some pictures behind the desk that were of a craft underneath Hudson River that was taken by a police officer, so that broke the ice, and we started to talk. And um, he took an interest in our case, and and um, and uh, an astute person, a very educated, a nice guy, was very supportive. And I think he had a, re- a mutual respect for my father because they were both attorneys. So when he asked if he um, would mind, you know, you know, talking to him more about it because he had the symposium come up, and I said, no, we talked to you about it. It's been years since we really spoke about it, so it was a good time to do so. And so I legally retained him. I legally retained Robert, and. Um, for a couple of things, and um, and with that, he he um, had this, you know, he held a symposium, and and um, and whether or not it, you know, thirty three four twenty six ever went through or not, you know, I think it was relevant really because this there was still a lot of good points made and a lot of paperwork and contracts and papers came back that landed in my father's hands and mine, and so we really thought at that point that was that was going to be it, and. And then the other thing, this is the really strange thing about our case, is that my father, when he was getting ready to retire, he was now a principal of a school. And he had a lot of, he had done a lot of research on this. He he had a lot of friends and a lot of people he could pull on and rely on and get information from. And and um, he had a voice, you know, being in, I mean, there's a, there's a proclamation in my father's honor there's a local holiday in our father's honor and there's a bench in the city green and he was in politics and he knew people. So he had a voice. If he wanted to say something on the news, he could send it. He could make a phone call and he would get on the news. And so when he 
voiced the fact that he wanted to write a book about a lot of the things that he had learned over the years, and, and it had to do with this topic. Um, oddly enough, he actually got killed on the same day, October 2nd, 2006. And it just brought a lot of attention um, to our family. Now, whether or not that was a fluke thing, sure, it's possible. But I can say this, that the CDC came in from Atlanta, or they hired a third-party company through the CDC, and that was through the mayor of Bridgeport, who was also um, a very good friend of my father's, and they closed down the building, and it's still closed to this day. That building where my father died um, was said to have had a rare uh, virus in it that um, attacked his bloodstream in the form of a rare fungus. So when he went to the hospital and they gave him antibiotics because he was burning up, it killed the good bacteria with the bad, and it flatlined my father and put him into cardiac shock. Now, Robert Bletchman died about eight months later, and I think from natural causes. Um, but then our doctor, the strange thing is our doctor, Michael Buckner, uh, released his findings on, on a lot of the reports, which I'll be showing in Ozark. I'll be showing all this in Ozark. Um, he was asphyxiated on November 12th after releasing his information or his papers and medical reports on September 15th, just eight weeks later. So that's also odd. So what do you what do you do? You say well, individually maybe it's nothing, but what do they all have in common? Why was my attorney run off the road by a hired private investigator by the name of Lexinger when she was taking our documentation down to the the courts to have a memorandum of law written on them to show that the polygraphs were you know were legal they weren't you know fudged and and that the paperwork that I have is is all legit. I mean I have a lot of documents. A lot of, uh, you know, just a lot of tangibles about a lot of different parts of this. It's a big web. But but it means something. There's value here. It just needs some people to put it together and say, okay, Tom, maybe let me help you work on some of this and put it together with you, you know, because there's just so much here. I mean, there was radiation readings associated with our case. There was there were some magnetic anomalies that were caught on tape. Um we passed a polygraph exam. It went out on WSBS radio. It was actually given a, a Heine classification on September 1969. I don't think that means that it's a Project Blue Book case or anything, but it was given a Heine classification back then. And, and so there's a you know there's a lot here. Our, re- our restaurant is still there in town. Uh, WSBS radio and AM station from the 60s is still operating on the same call letters. A lot of the people that witnessed this. Um, they own gas stations in town now. There are pillars in the in the area. Um, you know, Galata still remember it. The police, the officer in town, it was like a two cops and right there, a little police department behind their a restaurant. And they would eat at a restaurant, so they the police would talk about this in our restaurant. And and so the, he's the father. The officer has passed, but his son, who was with him, is still in town, still remembers it. Right. So you have all these people in town that still talk about it. That what happened, WSBS actually had me back on the radio for my birthday. They said, let's see if we can get Tom Reed back on the show for his birthday. And that was a couple of years ago. And so many people called in and were talking about it that the Historical Society thought, well, what do you think? And so it went for a vote. And last year it didn't go through. I guess there were just so many that just thought that because of the topic, you know, um, if there was any other subject, you could get a conviction with the amount of documentation we have. But because of the topic, it didn't go through. So at the end of the year, some people were, were replaced or voted off, and other people came on, and then sure enough, they adopted it, and it was inducted into the Historical Society. 
and then it made front page news with the Boston Globe, and uh, and there's a lot of detail. I mean, I, have a, I don't know how much time I've got with you on the phone today, but, but there's an awful lot that I'm going to show at Ozark. I mean, I'm going to start shoot the nuts. It's going to be an open book. I'm going to throw it all out there. There's, it's the first time I'm going to be able to talk about this and really show that you know if we stick to our guns and we're honest and we're forthcoming. You know, keep it reeled in. We don't let it get sensationalized, and keep to the truth. Eventually, some good will come from it, and we will make a difference. Right. And that's what this conference is going to be about. Those are about the little things that we do to make a difference. And hopefully, the value in our case will you know will, you know encourage others to do the same thing. Well, the consciousness of this many people coming together to um, on this particular topic. You know, 28 years of people convening to talk about the UFO, you know, phenomena, the experience. And listeners, you can see um, we, we are hearing from Tom Reed tonight, who was just sharing his personal childhood experience, and Richard Dolan um, was on. Um, will be coming joining us in just a moment. Again, he was he was speaking earlier. They are two of many speakers at this conference. The the website where information on all the speakers is ozarkufoconference.com I'll repeat that ozarkufoconference.com there's a wonderful article in Spirit Seeker this month um, but this this there's something um, changing and um, yeah. Richard you I'm going to join come back to you you've been part of these conferences for um, for some time you've been researching for 20 years we um, Earlier, uh, Richard was saying that each person, some, it's like, like it's not always a happy experience um, when people have these encounters, and there's always an, a, a deep emotional. Um, I, I mean, we could hear it when you were. I mean, I could hear it when I'm sure that everyone else can. Um, when you were speaking, it's like we were transported with you, and, and there's still. Even though this happened when you were nine years old, we can still feel that. So I want to jump back to Richard. Um, you, from the time you first started 20 years ago through joining these conferences, what would you say is different about right now with what's happening with people talking about it? Well, that's a great question, um, Cindy. I would say that within um, – you have conference culture and you've got the kind of general culture that with people who do not go to UFO-oriented conferences. Um, it, it seems to me that within – Within the alternative knowledge field, which includes UFOs, there you've got different factions of, of cultures. Uh, there's still like a kind of a, a kind of nuts and bolts traditional faction of people who are interested in the UFO phenomenon, um, who are not, let's say, really involved or invested in the New Age uh, consciousness movement, which is a completely different sort of movement, which overlaps and intersects with the UFO field. Um, and then, you get, thirdly, you get the kind of um, kind of anti-New World Order conspiracy culture crowd, which is a, a different subset. So it's like a big Venn diagram where you've got like UFO research, you've got New Age alternate, uh, you know, consciousness, and you've got like let's, let's say the Alex Jones kind of uh, you know anti-New World Order kind of group, and and those are distinct. Um, and I think what's happened is over the past 20 years, there's been I think a tremendous amount of movement intellectually in all three of those those different groups, and I think in a lot of ways you're kind of feeding off of each other, and um, I, I think it's kind of like a, a brew of ideas that are 
constantly coming up. I think there's a lot of intellectual activity. What I do see um, is that in the, the general culture out there, there's still this intense, intense attempt at dumbing down the general population. I think we can't uh, delude ourselves into thinking that everyone, you know, I've talked to a lot of people in advance of 2012 when everyone was convinced that, oh, yes, they're gonna, we're going to ascend and we, you know, we'll move into higher density. Well, and who are believing that, yes, people around everyone is developing higher consciousness, developing higher frequencies. I kept saying, you know what, I'm not really seeing it when I walk my dog in my neighborhood. <laughs> I don't I don't see it when I'm just shopping in a supermarket. I don't see it in a lot of other places. So I think that there's still this it's almost like these different cultures are splintering off within our society. But within the the community of um, like-minded people who are researching this phenomenon and interested in alternative theories of reality, I think there's been a, a great deal of um of movement, and I think since 9-11, a greater, much greater sophistication politically about the kind of world we live in. Well, and you know, it's interesting, um, when I when I think, you know, Spirit Seeker has been published online since 1998. The Internet came to be in 1994. And, you know, I saw, you know, this thing with Katie Corey and, you know, some different newscasters laughing. Oh, yeah, a different kind of email, you know, I mean, everyone joked about it because that was when everything was communicated by faxes, and I yeah. do think that the, U, the um, listen, I started to say the UFO, the internet has changed, like, all of us can connect in so many different ways, I mean, who would have ever dreamed we would have a radio station, you know, beamed to every, anywhere, you know, through the internet, you know, my... Everything's gotten ramped up. The whole yes. intellectual and communication globally is just gone. It's exponential beyond what it was even 10 years ago, little alone 20. And, you know, we saw, you know, when um, when Egypt was in unrest, we saw what Egypt did. They shut down all the communication. You know, no one, you know, they just yeah. were like, that's it. And you mentioned earlier that, you know, uh, China and Russia – you know, I mean, the United States is afraid of China. They, they, we owe them a lot of money. And I can remember, you know, dating this very, you know, wise, wise uh, doctor, um, doctor of chiropractic in the early 80s. And I remember him saying, let China sleep for when she awakens, the whole world will tremble. And, you know, I think there's, um, I, I think that there's intelligence in each of these countries. And I think that up until now, and I, you know, correct me if, if I'm on the wrong track here, but I feel like up until now everyone's had their own little private domain of intelligence, um, how do I put it, research or whatever. I mean, you look at what happened in, you know, World War II with all of the different scientific, you know, experiments they did on people, which was horrific. But, you know, there's just been, like, each country's had their own thing, and that seems to be changing. Yeah, I think... Um we're certainly moving into a global, a kind of a global culture, uh, for better and for worse. You know, um, what, what I would love to, I know we're just about out of time. I would love to see a, a true globalism where, uh, where people can actually participate and kind of own, own their future. What we're, what we're moving into right now, which we really have to stand up and fight, is a globalism that is dominated by a very, very small number of people who basically want to use the global community to buy up all everything that is of value in this world, whether it's the water, minerals, even the air that we breathe, the genetically modified foods that they're going to force us to eat. That's the kind of globalism they're trying to create. Uh, what we what we have to do around the world 
is become aware of this and we have to fight that. Uh, one of the, the secrets that is being kept has to do with the UFO phenomenon. Um, in other words, what's really being created, and uh, and then I'll, I'll I'll stop. But is it an oligarchic, totalitarian kind of global system in which wealth and knowledge, like true esoteric knowledge, is being hoarded by a very small group of people for their own benefit? That's what I think is happening, and um, and the rest of the world needs to wake up and actually take measures to fight that. And that is a perfect way to complete our show. I, I, what you just said, listeners, you can replay it. This is a podcast. I encourage you to share this. This is, this is, you know, I cannot thank the two of you for being my guests, and I apologize for the chaos at the beginning, but you know what? It all worked, and we will get this out to as many people as we can. Um, you know, it has been tweeted. It will be retweeted, and I want to give um, the, the the date uh, of the conference is in April. It's coming up. It's You need to register April 10th through 12th. And uh, you can go to OzarkUFOConference.com to um, find out more information. And Tom Reed and Richard Dolan, I want to thank you so much for being my guests. I want to thank my producer for handling Cindy Meyer and the confusion. So thank you so much, everyone, um, and just thank you both. Thanks for having me. Okay. All right. Good night, everyone. Thank you so much. Good night. Good night. Good night.